Welcome to all of you. It's good to have you here with us this morning. My name is Trevor, and if you have a Bible, and I hope you do have a Bible, would you please join me in opening up to, God, to, to John chapter 20, to the Gospel of John chapter 20. We just a week ago celebrated Easter together, and it was a lot of fun being together for Easter did you have a wonderful Easter? Yeah? I'm glad. We got to do some baptisms last week. Those were amazing. It was such a joy and privilege for me as a father to be able to baptize two of my own kids, to be able to do that in the presence of you all, my church family, and to be able to be back here a week later in this beautiful weather under God's word together is one of my greatest joys. And I do hope that this morning, as we look at scripture together, that we, we would hear a, a voice, the voice of God, speak to us and meet us in our time of need. We, um, we, we, we finished Easter, and I know that you've opened to the Gospel of John chapter 20. And for some of you, you might be wondering if we are continuing in the Gospel of John. We are not. Um, but we are, we are beginning a series the next three weeks where we are going to deal with doubt. Doubt. When I was younger and I was a part of a church in high school, there was sort of this low-level, unspoken fact, which is you do not really mention your doubts lest you give anybody the impression that you do not have strong faith in Jesus. And it is fitting that just a week after we have gathered together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that we would then this morning look at a story that will speak about the reality that even some of Jesus's, or specifically one of Jesus's closest disciples, a week later found himself wondering whether or not what everyone celebrating was actually true. And so the next few weeks, we are going to deal with doubt together. We're going to address it. We're going to look at it from Scripture. And we're going to hope that God moves in the midst of our community and strengthens us as we go. So we'll begin this morning by looking at doubt, and specifically Thomas, the one who is most commonly referred to as Doubting Thomas. Then next week we'll be in Isaiah and we'll be looking at fear and doubt. And then the last week we will be in the book of Jude where we will talk about being a community that has mercy on those who doubt. So again, this morning, if you've got your Bible, please join me in opening to John chapter 20. When I was just later in high school, I got the opportunity to see the late great evangelist Billy Graham. I saw him in person at the Oakland Coliseum in Oakland, California, where he gave kind of the same sermon that he had been giving all across the country in a great crusade where he would go to stadium after stadium and he would proclaim the good news of Jesus. He would proclaim the gospel. He would stand in front of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, and he would tell them that apart from Christ, that they were dead in their transgressions and sins, separated from God, but 
but that God, out of his love for them, had sent Jesus to live a perfect life, to die the death that we deserve. He was buried, and then on the third day, he rose again, declaring that anybody who put their faith and trust in him would have life everlasting. He preached that message with great confidence and great authority. And then as he finished preaching that sermon, the the band came up and played Just As I Am as droves of people all the way from the third deck would come down below to, to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to declare before God, God, I believe in you. I trust in you. I want to follow you. Billy Graham spoke with great confidence and great authority. And few of us would know or even think that a hero like Billy Graham, who preached the gospel in person to maybe more people than anybody at the time that he was preaching, more than anybody in history, few people would know that he deeply wrestled at one point with his own Christian faith. Following an unsuccessful evangelism crusade in Altoona, Pennsylvania... Billy Graham was told that he was 50 years out of date. That people didn't accept the Bible as being inspired the way that he did. That his faith was too simple. His language was out of date. And that he was going to have to learn new jargon if he wanted to be successful in ministry. Billy Graham, at once, at this this moment, considered giving up his vocation abandoning his ministry, questioning whether or not God's word was true. And it was one night that Billy Graham walked into the woods and he set his Bible on a tree stump and he cried out to God, Oh God, there are many things in this book that I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. One of the greatest preachers of all time in the forest by himself, Bible on tree stump, crying out to the Lord saying, Lord, I'm not entirely sure that I can stand on your word. Billy Graham, great hero of the faith, once doubted. You may also know that it was not too long ago that the diaries of Mother Teresa were discovered. Not everybody wanted her journals and diaries to be publicly released. Not everyone wanted them to be read for fear that people wouldn't like what they found. Because in them what they discovered about Mother Teresa, a woman who had given her entire life to serving the poorest of poor in the streets of Calcutta, was that she experienced several crises of faith at times unsure about whether or not God had called her to serve the way that she had once thought was so clear. Doubt happens. Some of your greatest heroes in the Bible, doubt happens. And for you this morning, some of you know that, although we often wonder if we have the courage to say it. Would you just do me a favor this morning? Would you just, if you have ever doubted, found yourself in any season, any moment, doubting the character of God, the goodness of God, the worthiness of his plan, maybe your own faith or your own salvation, would you just do me a favor? Would you just put your hand in the air right now? 
If you've ever doubted God at all, would you put your hand right now? Would you look around for a second as the vast majority of us have our hands up? You can put them down. Whether it is in our times of suffering or struggle, times where we are feeling confused or lost, times when we are uncomfortable with what is happening in our lives, maybe how dissatisfied we sometimes find ourselves, it is not uncommon for us to begin to doubt. And rather than being the kind of church that just simply says, forget about doubt, we're only going to talk about faith, let's take the next few weeks to be real and honest about the realities that sometimes we all struggle and face doubt. And so what do we do with our doubts? What do we do in those moments when we are wrestling, when we are struggling, when we are wondering whether or not God is good or true or whether or not even he is resurrected from the grave? To help us answer that question this morning, John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. This is what that text says. Verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. This is on Easter. On Easter, Thomas wasn't there to see Jesus resurrected. Verse 25. So the other disciples told him... We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This morning, as we wrestle together with doubt, I'm going to take us into four ideas around doubt. Doubt and four concepts that come out of this text that I hope you'll see in this text. They are isolation, confession, visitation, and direction. So doubt and isolation, doubt and confession, doubt and visitation, doubt and direction. Let's begin with doubt and isolation. Here's the first thing I want to say to you this morning. Doubt sometimes grows when we are isolated from God's people. 
Now, I do not mean to suggest in any way, shape, or form that if you are always around God's people, you'll never doubt. Nor do I mean to suggest in any way that if you abandon God's people, that you can't always, you can't believe. What I am saying is that when we are isolated, we are more likely to experience doubt. In the text, right there in the beginning in verse 24, we meet Thomas, and, the, and John wants you to know that while, while the rest of the disciples, 10 of them, stands Judas, 10 of them were all together on, on Easter, Thomas was not. Now, we don't know why Thomas was not. We know very little about Thomas. We know he was dedicated. In John chapter 11, when Jesus is thinking about going to Jerusalem, Thomas declares, let's go to Jerusalem and die with Jesus. So maybe Thomas finds himself upset that he didn't get to die with Jesus. He's recoiling from the fact that the last time he saw Christ, he was crucified on a cross and then buried. Thomas is maybe frustrated. Maybe he's irritated. Maybe he is sour. Who knows? The other ten figured out a way to get together. And you imagine they looked around at some point and said, all right, let's count them off. We know that Judas, the betrayer, is gone. Are we all here? Well, where's Thomas? Did you tell him we were going to meet here? Of course we told him. Where is he? We don't know. And what happens that Easter evening? They meet Jesus. They encounter Jesus, the resurrected Lord, on Easter. It changes everything for them. Ten of them, ten of the twelve, experience the fullness of meeting Christ, their Savior, resurrected, but not Thomas. Why? Well, because Thomas wasn't there. Part of what we do as a church is not just deal with things like doubt, but we try to deal with how do we prevent things like doubt. One of the hardest things to deal with is suffering. And one of the hardest moments to speak truth into our lives is when we are suffering. So what do we do? We gather together in part as Christians to prepare for the times when we will suffer. To prepare you for the times when you may doubt, I want to encourage you that community often functions as a preventative measure against our doubts. Whether or not we attend on Sunday or participate in our community group or connect with other members in the church, our family of believers, we often start with the question, do I want to go? Am I up for it? Is that, gonna be, is, is that what I want to do with my time? Rather than waking up to the truth that sometimes when we make the decision to gather together, God has something for us that we would have otherwise missed if we were in isolation. It was just a couple of years ago that a woman in our church came to me and she said, Pastor Trevor, why do we never preach about X? This particular topic that, was that she was very passionate about. She had some thoughts on, some concerns about, she wanted to hear about. And I responded to her, I said, is that a passionate, are you passionate about that? Is that something you care a lot about? She said, yes. And I said, were you here a few weeks ago when we talked about it? And she said, no. And I said, well, it probably, I don't know what your reasons were. I'm not in any way suggesting that there aren't good reasons to not be here. Don't mishear me. What I am saying is that, 
is that sometimes when we are removed from community, we miss the very gift that God has for us when we make the decision to show up and be not isolated, but connected. We have seen statistics. In years past, the average person attended their church service about 3.5 times per month. That number has only fallen consistently over the years. And I get it, there's wonderful things to do. There's beautiful weather, we've got the beach, we've got sports and activities, we've got events, we've got, we've got shopping, we've got, uh, we want to rest, we want to stay home, we want to sleep in, we've got all these things we want to do. I get all of those things, but I want to remind you that when we are isolated from God's people, it creates opportunity for our doubts to grow. Let me ask you this morning, are you connected How connected are you to those around you? Your doubts grow in isolation. Secondly, doubt and confession. Doubt happens. So Thomas is now interacting with the other 10 in verse 25. So the other disciples, presumably, they find Thomas, they connect with Thomas, they discover where he is, and they say to him in 25, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So the disciples say, Thomas, we saw the Lord. And he says, I don't think so. Now, one of the things I think is interesting is Thomas's name is Didymus. And Didymus means the twin. And we don't know much about whether or not he's got a twin sister or a twin brother or an identical twin. But I like to think that Thomas might have an identical twin or at least is familiar with the concept of identical twin. So when his ten friends, his ten close companions come to him and say, Thomas, we saw Jesus. In his head, he's thinking, no, you didn't. You saw someone who looks like Jesus. I saw Jesus. I saw him crucified on the cross. I saw him beaten and bloody. I saw him. I saw that happen. Whoever you saw, it wasn't Jesus. Thomas has good reasons to believe that it wasn't Jesus. It's hard to believe in the resurrected Jesus. When we gather together and we talk about Jesus, when we talk about the things that Jesus did, many of us are very comfortable saying, I believe that Jesus existed. I mean, I believe George Washington existed. I, don't, I never saw him. I never met him. I don't know anybody who knows George Washington. I don't know anybody who knew anybody who knew George Washington. But I trust the historical records enough to know that, yeah, George Washington existed. In the same way, many of us believe Jesus existed. In our world today, it's not, that's not all that contested. If I say that Jesus taught that we should love God and love our neighbors, people say, yes, I believe that Jesus taught that. Jesus in the role of teacher or the historical Jesus are both relatively easy for us to believe in. But the moment that I suggest that Jesus did the miraculous is the moment many people check out. Jesus healed people. People go, ah, did he really? I'm not so sure. Jesus brought Lazarus out from the dead. People go, ah, mm, I don't know. That seems like a myth. That seems like a fairy tale. 
And maybe no greater claim, the most central claim to Christian faith is that Christ is resurrected from the dead. Something that's never been done before. Something that nobody thought would happen. And so it makes every bit of sense for both Thomas and us today to look at the empty tomb and go, uh, I think there's got to be a better explanation. Thomas doubts that Jesus is resurrected. If you're here this morning and you are struggling to believe that Jesus did miracles, that Jesus is resurrected, I want you to know you're not alone. But I want you to see what Thomas does. The second point of mine is doubt and confession. What does Thomas do with his doubts? He confesses them. To the other ten, what does he do? He opens that door and tells his ten, ten of them who are looking at his, in his face and saying, Thomas, you don't understand, we saw Jesus. And he doubts, and rather than keeping it stuffed inside of him, he looks at the ten and goes, I don't think so. I doubt that that's true. Now, Thomas probably believes that they believe that they saw Jesus, and Thomas is not an unbeliever in Jesus. Thomas has followed Jesus and listened to Jesus and learned from Jesus. Thomas is a believer in Jesus. He's not an unbeliever. But here he is wrestling with doubt. Doubt happens. And what does Thomas do with it? He expresses it. I don't know what traditions you come from. But for many of us, who are Christian, we grew up in churches or Christian spaces where we were told not to ever be honest about our doubts. And I want to argue that if we keep our doubts inside of us, if we suppress them and we never deal with them, we never acknowledge them, we never confess them, we're never honest about them, that what they will do is fester and grow in the darkness. Thomas is skeptical of the resurrection, and your Bible includes a story acknowledging that even those close to Jesus were skeptical of the resurrection. And so Thomas expresses, here is my doubt. Here's what I'm doubting. Brother, sister, I don't know what your doubts are. I don't know where they've come from. Our doubts often emerge in suffering and difficulty out of periods of confusion Charles Taylor, the great philosopher who wrote a book called Our Secular Age, argues in that book that in today's world, um, people of faith wrestle with doubt and people of doubt wrestle with faith. And he argues that part of the reason that that happens is that we walk out of our doors into a world where everybody believes something different than we do. And they all believe something different than each other does as well. If you live in Los Angeles, there's a good chance you've got an atheist neighbor. You probably have a Muslim neighbor. You probably have a New Age neighbor. You probably have a pure secular neighbor. You probably have a neighbor who believes in the universe and the cosmos. There's a good chance you've got a neighbor who believes that stones and crystals can heal. You might have a neighbor who believes in astrology. And you walk out of the door and you go, we all kind of look at the world differently. And because we are not often connected to, to large groups of people who are constantly saying, yeah, we all kind of hold and believe the same thing, when we feel this sort of what Charles Taylor calls cross-pressure, when we recognize that people around us hold different views than we hold, it creates doubt. 
We live in an information age where I think all of us would agree that, the, that we, have, we, we all thought, hey, you know what? If we give more people access to more information, we're all going to know more and be more aligned. How untrue is that? If anything, more access to more information, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, but one of the consequences of it is that everyone has their own truth based by, on their own experts with their own research. And when those kinds of things happen in culture, it creates doubt. I want you to see that in the Bible, Thomas is honest with his other ten about his doubts. And I want to ask you this morning, do the people who are close to you, who know you, who love you, do they know about your doubts? Have the courage to be honest about the things that you doubt. Be honest with each other. Be honest in your community groups. Be honest in your marriages. Be honest... Adults, let me, let me tell you, sometimes with great caution and patience, it is wise and good to be honest with your children about the times which you've struggled with doubt, lest they begin to see you as some sort of Christian superhero. Are you honest about your doubts like Thomas? Third, doubt and visitation. So right after this text, in verse 26, it says, a week later. This is the following Sunday. And I love this because right here it says in verse 26, the disciples were in the house again. And this time it says, and Thomas was with them. We'll talk about this more in a couple of weeks. But I want you to notice, how did the ten respond to doubting Thomas? Did they say, oh, you don't believe? Oh, okay. Enough with you. The ten of us are going to hang out now. No, Thomas is with them a week later. He's still around. What was that week like? As they were saying, their whole lives had changed. Jesus is resurrected. He did it. He accomplished it. And for an entire week, Thomas is going, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. And did anyone say to Thomas, I wonder, Thomas, you're kind of a downer. Why don't you go ahead and skip this next hangout session while we rejoice in the... No, they, they keep Thomas with them. And what happens? Doubt and visitation. Though the doors were locked. I like that little note John lets you realize that the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them. And Jesus said, peace be with you. So he says, shalom, peace. And then verse 27, then he says to Thomas, what does he say? He says, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus doesn't ask Thomas anything. He shows up in the room. He says, peace. And then who does he have his eye on? The one who doubts. Jesus does not show up and say, hey, 10 of you, it's good to see you again. He shows up and points his finger at the one who doubts and says, Thomas, I know about your doubt. I'm here for you. In the New Testament, when we see doubts arise, we always see God moving towards those who are struggling with doubt. 
In Mark chapter 9, there's a father who wants his daughter to be healed. He cries out to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And his daughter is healed. Maybe my favorite doubting story is one about John the Baptist, the great prophet, the great preacher, the weirdo who pointed to Jesus, who was there at his baptism, who saw heaven opened and heard the voice of God say, this is my son in whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. John the Baptist saw that. But then later John the Baptist found himself where? In prison. And what question does he send his disciples to ask Jesus? It's this question. Are you sure you're the Messiah? To which we would want to say, John, John, you were there. What you saw the you saw it all. How could you doubt? And what does Jesus do with John the Baptist? Does he say, go tell John that he's foolish, he's ridiculous, he was there? No, Jesus says, go tell them that the blind see. Go tell them that I am the Messiah. Go make that clear to John. Jesus knows your doubts and he pursues you when you are wrestling and doubting and struggling. He shows up and he goes right after Thomas. And he says, Thomas, look at the evidence. Look at my resurrected body. Stop doubting and believe. I want to make it very clear. Doubt is not a virtue. It's not something we are encouraged to pursue. It's not something we should desire. None of you should leave going, you know what, I need, I need more doubt in my life. Unless you have a lot of doubt and then you should doubt your doubts. But if that's not the case, doubt is not a virtue, but doubt happens and God is aware of it. And God wants to reveal something to you in the midst of it. But you have to want it. Doubt and visitation. I hope this morning that when you see God, when you see Christ, when you think of Jesus, you see yourself as Thomas wrestling with doubt. And I'd hope that as you would consider the face of God, you would see that God's desire in the midst of your doubts is not to abandon you, but to move towards you. Doubt and visitation. Fourth and finally, doubt and direction. Jesus, after saying to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas, in verse 28, said to Jesus, my Lord and my God, the greatest and highest declaration of faith in Christ as Lord and God in all of the Gospel of John is voiced by who? Thomas the Doubter. Thomas's name might need to be changed to Thomas the Great Confessor because he, upon seeing Jesus, upon interacting with Jesus, he then turns to Jesus and declares, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. Not just Lord and God, you are my Lord and my God. I want you to understand that doubt can lead to stronger faith. Thomas makes one of the strongest declarations of faith. He goes from doubter and skeptic 
all of a sudden to great professor, great believer. Why? Why? Because he was honest about his doubts. Christ came to him, met him in the midst of them, and his faith grew stronger. Timothy Keller says this, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. I want you to think for a moment about how doubt is directional. You you have doubt, and you can turn your doubts away from God, or you can turn your doubts towards God. Many of the things that I stand on with the most amount of confidence are things that I doubted sincerely decades ago. Some of you in this very church have known me long enough and have heard me express things that I was wrestling and struggling with. I wrestled with whether or not the Bible could be taken as God's word. And it was asking that question, not in isolation, but in community. It was asking that question and seeking out the answer to it that I was able to come to a place of much greater strength. Jesus, doesn't, he never distinguishes Right, so he never fails to distinguish in the Bible between doubt and unbelief. I want you to understand this. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is saying, I'm struggling to believe this. Unbelief is, I refuse to believe this. Doubt is honest. Unbelief is obstinate. Doubt looks for light. Unbelief is content with darkness. The atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel said that even if it were proved to him that Christianity was true, he would not believe or become a Christian because he does not want to believe in the God of the Bible. That's not doubt, that's unbelief. What I want you to wrestle with this morning is as you think about your doubts, do you understand that your doubts can be brought into the light, can be moved towards the light? That your doubts should take you towards honesty, towards community, towards Christ, towards the light? Or will they keep you obstinate? Is your posture, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? Or is your posture, I refuse to believe? And I refuse to seek answers to the questions that I have. Doubt has a direction. What direction is your doubt facing? Is it seeking the light? Is it seeking answers? Is it seeking knowledge? Seeking wisdom? Seeking community? Seeking prayer? Seeking support? I hope so. Because I have only seen people whose faith have become 
devastated or their faith has been ultimately destroyed because when they experienced doubt, they kept it in, they covered it up, they felt like they were going to be treated with shame and guilt if they were honest about the fact that they wrestled with things and they buried it and then difficulty came and then their faith and their whole life unraveled. Doubt has a direction. Lastly, I just want to close by pointing this out. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And does Jesus say to Thomas, whoa, Thomas, that's too much. I'm neither Lord nor God. No. Jesus receives Thomas's confession. Why? Because Jesus is risen. Jesus is God. Jesus really died. He was really buried. And on the third day, he really rose again from the grave, defeating death. Which means, and I want you to hear this, that even as you wrestle with doubt, if you have Jesus, if you're clinging to Jesus, if you're holding to Jesus, then you are clinging to and holding to and you are in possession of God himself. It is never the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. I just flew on a plane. I was, uh, from, I was from Kentucky to Los Angeles. And I was sitting on the plane, and uh, the captain pulls out his, you know, his microphone and says, Hey, folks, I was walking around the plane. I noticed uh, on the left wing, there's a little something dripping. There's fuel. So we're going to call maintenance over here, and, uh, and we're going to have them take a look at it. Just going to be a little bit of a delay. Well, I'm, I'm sitting here on the plane, looking over to my left, and I can see the pilot kind of looking up, the captain looking up, kind of shaking his head, which is just not what you want to see when you're on a plane. The maintenance guy comes out. He gets out a paper towel and an Allen wrench. He goes up there, he starts fiddling with it, shakes his head, walks down, can still see it dripping a little bit. The guy next to me says, think I'm going to make our connecting flight. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Captain comes over and he, on, the, on the microphone, he says, hey, we've taken a look at it and, uh, and we, we think we're good to go. So we're, we're going to go. We're going to fly. Now, I got to be honest with you. Um, I, 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 I don't have any fear of flying. I did a little bit the other day. I just did. I just, I saw it. I saw it dripping. I saw it dripping. I saw the guy come out. I saw the conversation. I was assured it's going to be okay, but I was struggling with that. As the plane took off, I'm watching the left wing, looking carefully. Is anything, I don't know what's going to happen, right? I just, I want, I want you to say that this is important, right? My confidence in the plane is not what got me to Los Angeles. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like, my, my confidence in the, in the plane, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't my, the strength of my belief. In other words, I didn't arrive safely at L.A. because I sat in there just thinking the whole time, we're good, we're good. It's like, in other words, if I thought we're going to die, it didn't mean we were going to die. It's not like I thought if we're going to be great, we're going to be great. It wasn't the strength of my faith in the plane that got me to L.A. It was the plane itself. 
And here's why I want you to understand this, because it makes all the difference. Some of you have begun to believe that if you have doubts at all, what that means is you have weak faith. And if you have weak faith, you don't have saving faith. And if you don't have saving faith, you are destined forever to be separated from God. Brother, sister, friend, hear me when I tell you. It is not the strength of your faith in Jesus that saves you. It's Jesus that saves you. He is resurrected. He has conquered death. He is alive and well. He knows you and he loves you and he pursues you. It's not your grip on him, it's his grip on you. If you have Jesus, you have everything. Because he is resurrected, his promises are true. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Come to him if you are weary, weary of doubt. Come to him if you are burdened, burdened with doubt. And in him you will find rest for your souls. Your doubts do not put him back in the grave. Your doubts do not mean that he is not powerful to save. He is. So let your doubts lead you to Jesus. On mountaintops... He stays the same. In valleys low, he never changes. And we believe that we will see the goodness of the Lord. I'm confident as seasons change that his faithfulness, his faithfulness remains. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we stand before you this morning recognizing that we as a people are a mixture of faith and doubt. Lord, we cry out like the Father in Mark 9. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to be honest about our doubts, to do it in the presence of community. Surround us with people who love us and will walk with us, who will seek to help us answer, who will seek to hear us out, as we deal with all of the things that the doubt has caused in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be a community that would be known, yes, for great faith, but I also pray, Lord, we would be a community that was honest about our doubts. And that you would, Lord, use our doubts to, like Thomas, drive us towards greater and deeper faith in you. That you would use our doubts, like Thomas, to strengthen our ties with our community. That would use our doubts, like Thomas, to see your goodness, your faithfulness. So Lord, I want to pray for those who are here this morning and are wrestling with doubt. Lord, I also want to pray this morning for those who are here who do not have doubt, they have unbelief. They've refused to believe in you. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would change them this morning. You would knock on the door of their hearts, that they would begin to see that you are who you said you are, that the tomb really is empty, that you truly are God, that in you is forgiveness of sin, in you is light and life and love is eternal life forever and ever. And this morning, Lord, I pray that some people who are here or listening who are struggling with unbelief would give that up this morning and give themselves wholly over to you. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have the ability to use doubts to strengthen our faith. We thank you that our doubts do not mean that that tomb is not empty. We thank you 
that you've surrounded us in a church with people, brothers and sisters, who will walk alongside us in the midst of our struggles. Help us, Lord. We believe. Help our unbelief. It's in your name we pray. Amen.